Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, good morning, Mission Church. Uh, I can't tell you how grateful that I am to be uh, with you this morning and to be sharing God's Word with you. It's, it's truly humbling uh, to do so as it is any time when I'm sharing God's Word, whether it is with an unbeliever, with mission kids, or whatever. It's, it's just always such an awesome responsibility. So I uh, just appreciate your prayers for me this morning as we go through this text uh, in our teaching series on the attributes of God, and in our teaching series, God is the Gospel, uh, we've been going through differing a- uh, attributes of God. And last week, uh, Eric did a great job in going through the sovereignty of God. And as we were going through, and Justin, Eric, and I were talking about who would teach what, uh, Justin and Eric gave me the freedom to pick which attribute I would like to teach on and preach on this morning. And I was immediately and quickly drawn to the holiness of God. And to give you a little bit of background on that, the reason so is because of a book that I read called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And much of what you're going to hear today is, is notes taken from that, so I want to give a full disclaimer. But in that book, it was something that God used to draw me to understand His holiness really for the first time, and to really grasp what I can, as a finite being, can grasp, and just blew me away. But it was through that book that God helped me to understand who, how holy he really is. And so, thus, I was so quickly drawn to God's holiness in our teaching series. But, you know, sadly, so many churches today teach very little on God's holiness, if any at all. And it's, it's certainly... Uh, grievousome. It's, it's certainly sad, but as we're going to learn about today in our text, the Bible speaks a lot about God's holiness and places much emphasis on God's holiness. And as Hannah just read for us, our text for today is going to be Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So we're going to hang out there. We're going to go back and forth for a couple passages. But if you will, just pray with me uh, this morning as we go into this text. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this time together as brothers and sisters. Lord God, we just thank you for your holiness. We thank you for all of your attributes, Lord God, because that is who you are. And you do what you do because of who you are. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are holy and loving and kind and merciful and just and sovereign. So, Lord God, I just pray that uh, you would be with me as I teach this text this morning. Help me to teach it with clarity and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen. So, to, today, guys, our points are going to be very simple, but yet, I hope, very profound. Uh, for Leanne and I and the other Mission Kids teachers, we've been going through the ABCs of God. All right? And in the teaching with the children, there's, as we go through the characteristics of God, we teach that there are really three questions that you want to ask regarding God, His character, and Scripture. The first question is, who is God? The second question is, what is He like? And then the third question is, how should I respond to Him as such? And so... There you go. Those are our three points for today, so I want to give you that from the start. So if you're a note-taker like me, that's going to be your points today as we go through this text. Now, so answering the first question, or asking the first question of 
who is God, it's always important to look at the context, is it not? In context, context, context. So thankfully, Isaiah gives us the context here in Isaiah 6.1 when he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we read about this in Isaiah, but in Second Chronicles, you would read about the historical aspect of this as well. And you would read about the uh, ascent of Uzziah to the throne. You would read about his reign. You would read about his death. And in that, you would learn that in Second Chronicles 26, you would learn of how Uzziah reigned during one of the most prosperous times in Judah's history. He reigned during a very prosperous time, a very powerful time when, Uzziah, or when uh, Judah was at a height of its power. However, ironically, in talking about God's holiness, it was Uzziah's disregard for God's holiness that ultimately caused his downfall. It's a tragic story, actually. But in this text, we read in, in Second Chronicles, you would learn of how the fact that Uzziah reigned in Judah for over 50 years. For over 50 years, Uzziah reigned in Judah. Now, for many of us here in this room, there's very few of us who are yet 50 years old. And so it's very hard for us to comprehend the idea of a sovereign ruling over a, a people in a country for 50 years. Let me think about it. You're born, same king. You go to kindergarten, same king. You go to middle school, same king. You go to high school, college, have ki get married, have kids, have a career, same king. Yet this is what happened with Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years. And then we read about his death. And so to try to wrap our minds around this death of this king would be a tragic experience for those who were under his rule. For us who live in a democratic society, it's hard for us to understand that, right? But for these people who were under Uzziah's rule, they were under his rule for this such a long period of time. And with that death would bring about many emotions. Emotions of, obviously, sadness with the death of a king. And then the emotions of uncertainty. You, you know nothing other than the rule of this sovereign. And so there's going to be those feelings of uncertainty. However... It is at this time that God calls and commissions Isaiah. It's at this time. It's at this time that God gives Isaiah the heavenly vision of the true and better king. You know, though it is not explicitly stated here, I believe that we're seeing a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ seated on his throne. You know, for us living on this side of the cross and living in uh, in the church age, we know that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, do we not? Scripture tells us in 1 Timothy 6.15, uh, Paul referring to Jesus, he says that he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Then Mark 15.2, you know, Pilate and Jesus are having their conversation there, and Pilate asks him, are you the King of the Jews? What does Jesus say? You said so. You know, but what else, you know, in, but this shows us that in this time that God is comforting Isaiah and showing him that 
the king of kings is still seated on the throne. I know that all you've ever known has changed, but I've not. I am still the same. I'm still seated on the throne. But what else does this text tell us here about God? Right? Now, if you will notice, in the entirety of this text, you're going to see two words here. Lord and Lord. All right? The first Lord is spelled capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. All right? So what does that mean? You know, unfortunately, in our English translations, we, we lose a little bit of the meaning here of this word, Lord. Lord here, in the first instance, is Adonai. In the Hebrew, is, is it's, uh, it's the title and office of God's rule. So it's sort of like the, the title of a president, right? Although different people fill that office, it's still the same term. It's still the same title, Mr. President, and so forth. But the term here, Adonai, referring to God's sovereign rule, it also substantiates the message that God is giving to Isaiah and he is giving to us to show that the true king, the better king, the king of kings was, is, and always will be seated on his throne high and lifted up. So asking the question, who is God? Well, the text clearly tells us here that he is the king of kings. He is the only sovereign, and his rule has no end. But also, if you'll notice in this, this text, in its entirety, you see another word here, Lord, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What's the difference? Two words, same spelling, a little different in their caps, right? Well, the first word refers to God's sovereign rule as king. The second word, Lord, all caps, refers to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord, all caps. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Psalm 8, 9 says, O Lord, all caps, our Lord, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So you could say, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, if you will, think back for just a moment to the story of Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses is there in the burning bush as he's going after his lost sheep. And for me, one of my favorite movies is The Prince of Egypt. Any show of hands? Anybody seen that movie? Okay, I love that movie. I know it's a cartoon, but it's one of the best. I love it. And in that movie, it illustrates very vividly for me of that experience that Moses had. Moses is there before God in the burning bush, and God commissions Moses to go back to the people of Israel. And God says, and, or Moses asks him, who am I going to tell him? Well, what, what's your name? What's God's response? He tells him, he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. And every time I see that movie and that, that moment, man, it just runs chills down my spine. And it makes me long for the day that I can be before God just worshiping him in such a manner. And I know one day that will happen, and it's going to be good. 
Now, but we ask the question, well, what does that mean, right? What, what, is, what does I am who I am mean? So you've got Lord, Yahweh, I am. It's all translations, right? But what does it mean for God to be I am who I am? It means this, that God is self-existent. When God says that I am who I am, it means that he is self-existent and he does not need anything or anybody. Now, amazingly enough, if you will, think back to Jesus and his conversation with the religious leaders in John 8. In John 8, Jesus is having one of his many um, conversations with the religious leaders. And, and listen to what he says to them. He says, your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus is here telling these guys that he is in the burning bush. That's him. And they picked up stones to throw at him. They didn't pick up stones to throw at him because he used bad English or bad grammar. And they didn't pick up stones to throw at him because he was saying that he was older than Abraham. No, they picked up stones to throw at him because they believed that he was committing blasphemy by saying that he was the I am, that he was and is the self-existent one. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him. He was saying that he was and is Yahweh. So we asked the question, who is God? Well, the text here in Isaiah makes it pretty clear for us. God is the sovereign king of the universe. And that God is the self-existent one. And that all life comes from him. As we read so clearly about in John 1, right? So we ask the question then, well, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? Jesus is God with us. And he is that king who is seated on the throne high and lifted up. That's who God is. So then we want to ask the question, what is God like? What is God like? A.W. Tozer, we've quoted Tozer a lot in the series. And the reason for that, in many cases, is because he wrote a great book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you haven't read it, read it. It's great. Uh, but he says this, he says, the child, the philosopher, the religionist all ask the same question, what is God like? But we must answer this question, or understand this, guys, to answer that question is impossible. We can ask it, but it's impossible to answer it. Because we being finite beings cannot understand the infinite. We cannot comprehend the incomprehensible. However, what we can do is take what God reveals about himself in his creation and especially in his word to at least attempt to understand. So what does the text tell us here in Isaiah as far as what is God like? Verse 2 in chapter 6 says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, a couple of things about this verse here is, number one, would be the interesting fact that Isaiah describes the anatomy of the angels. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, he states that, that they had six wings, right? So the first set of wings says that they, that they had a set of wings to cover their face, right? Well, think about this. When God creates things in his infinite wisdom, he creates things to survive in the environment in which he created them to live. So with fish, he gives them gills, right? Fish are meant to swim in the sea, he gives them gills to breathe. Birds are meant to fly in the air, so he gives them what? He gives them wings. Bears are in the forest, and he gives them fur. Well, the same thing is true here for these angels. In order to survive, they had to have wings to cover their face. Why? Because their environment is the presence of God. Now, also thinking about Moses, if you will, let's think back about Moses up on the mountain. Moses is on the mountain, and he asks God the question, I want to see your face. I want to see you. What does God reply with? He tells Moses, he says, if you see me, Moses, you're going to die. But I will make a place for you here in this rock. I'll make a place for you here. You can hide here, and as I pass by, you can see my backside. You can see the afterglow of my glory. But otherwise, Moses, you're going to die. And so that's why God creates these angels to cover their face to survive in the environment of the presence of God. But the other set of wings that they have, they, they use them to cover their feet. Now, still thinking about Moses, Moses, once again, going back to the burning bush encounter, Moses is there in the presence of God. And what does God tell him to do? Tells him to take off his shoes for you're standing on holy ground. Well, the same is true for these angels. They are standing on holy ground. Thus they need the wings to cover their feet as they stand before him. And then lastly, these angels, they had the wings to fly. They had wings to fly because... Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits. But we also know that angels are finite beings just like us. They are not omnipresent like God. So, in order to be ministering spirits as they were created to be, they must go to and fro, and these wings allow that to happen. So that's the first interesting thing. But the second interesting thing about this text is, is not really the anatomy of these angels. It's a proclamation. It's a proclamation that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, you think about that. For me, when I, when I think about this, one of the first things that comes to my mind is being in a stadium of thousands of people. And people are, for you Kentucky fans, thinking of you all in Rupp Arena or something, and you're saying, blue, white, blue, white. It's a terrible analogy, but anyway... <laughs> But the thing here is something on a much grander scale. 
an infinitely grander scale of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels saying back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy to each other and proclaiming that God is such. Now this proclamation is what's called the trihagion. It's three holies. And what's interesting here is not that they repeat it once, not twice, but three times they say that God is holy. In the Hebrew language, this is a way to emphasize something. You know, for us in English, if we want to emphasize something, there are certain tools that we use literarily. So we will uh, italicize a word, we'll give it all caps, we'll put exclamation marks, we'll highlight it or whatever to emphasize something. But the Hebrews, they had their own ways of doing so. And to emphasize something in Scripture, you repeated it. You repeated it. And if you will think back, uh, oftentimes you would hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you. Now when Jesus says, truly, truly, and he's repeating something, you better pay attention because he's getting ready to tell you something extremely important. And what's interesting about this text here is that, like I said, they don't say it once, not twice, but three times that they say that God is holy. And if you think about it, in the entire Bible, in the entire Bible, nowhere does it say that God is love, 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 or that God is just, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. You never see that. You never see that. Although those things are true. But there is a clear communication here of God's holiness and a clear emphasis on it. And also with the trihagion here, or the three holies, there's a little bit of a hint at the triune God, is there not? So what does it mean for God to be holy? We've talked a lot about holiness, but what does it mean? That would be terrible if we missed that whole point. But what does it mean for God to be holy? Holy. Kodesh in the Hebrew and hagios in the Greek means simply this, to be separate to be separate, to be set apart. God being holy is separate from what? He, he's separate from his creation. He is uncreated. We are not, right? And in every attribute of God that we have covered in this series, he is separate from us. And though we know love, we can experience love, his love is a holy love. And it's a love that is separate from us. And though we can understand justness, his justness is a holy justness. And we can't even comprehend it. So every attribute of God is holy and it is separate from us. But also God is holy in that he is separate from sin. He's separate from sin and sinners in particular. He cannot be in the presence of sin, not even for a millisecond. And guys, if you think about it, if just for a millisecond, if for a millisecond God or sin was in the presence of God, by definition, in that millisecond, God would no longer be holy, right? In a millisecond, if sin was in front of him, because sin or holiness is being separate from sin, and if he changed and went from being holy to non-holy, then he just changed another attribute. 
the attribute of his immutability, the fact that he cannot change. So he cannot even be in the presence of sin or sinners, thus the need for the gospel, guys. That's the need for the gospel. And so we must understand that. And we must understand that God's attributes are not a standard by which God measures up to. Thus God is God. It's it's not a standard that he meets, thus he's God. No, because God is good, what he does is by definition good. And because God is intrinsically holy, what he does is therefore holy. He sets the standards, not us. Period. And we being creatures, guys, we are always seeking to meet those standards, but we're always failing to meet those standards, are we not? We're always seeking to be good. We're always seeking to be just. We're seeking to do these things on our own, and we cannot do it. We will not do it, guys. You will fail every time. Now, just to give you a couple quotes here to define holiness, Thomas Watson, Puritan, says this. He says, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. Again, quoting Tozer, he says this, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And R.L. Dabney says this, Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. And so we need to understand that when it comes to God's attributes, God's not a pie chart that the sum of those equals 100%. So he's not 10% love in this part of the pie chart and 30% just and 40% merciful and so forth. No, he is 100% love, 100% just, and 100% merciful and so forth and so forth. Thus, his love is a just love. His mercy is a loving mercy, a just mercy. And as Dabney put it, you take all these 100%s together. It is the culmination of all of God's attributes are holy. That's what makes him holy. So who is God? He is the self-existent, life-giving king of the universe. And what is he like? He is holy in all of his attributes, thus setting himself separate from his creation and especially his fallen creation. And understanding that we cannot answer this question of what he is he like, we can understand what he has revealed about himself. And where do we see that most clearly, guys? Where do we see the revelation of who God is most clearly and what he is like? In the life of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Thus we read in Hebrews 1.3, He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact 
imprint of his nature. So we ask, what is God like? He is like Jesus. Because Jesus is what? He is God with us. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are what? One. So who is God? God is Jesus. God with us. And what is he like? He's like Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. We must understand this. So next we ask the question, how should I act towards him? How should I respond? So how should I act and respond to a God that is so holy that I cannot even imagine it or obtain it? As Dabney states, Isaiah tells us, verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the first thing that we see in Isaiah's response is the response of utter terror in coming to the realization that God is holy and that He is not. Now, I dare say that Isaiah, humanly speaking, was a, was a good man. I dare say that Isaiah was a righteous man. Was he not? I, from a human perspective. But, listen to what he says. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm lost. Isaiah said that his lips are unclean. So he understood what Jesus said when, he, when Jesus says that it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. His lips were unclean because his heart was unclean. And he understood at that moment when he saw God's holiness, he knew that his heart was filled with malice and deceit. Later in Isaiah 40, or 64, 6, we know this verse so well, Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Think about that. Our best, our righteousness is like a polluted garment. Not our worst, not our sin, but our best, our absolute best. The best that we can do. Like I said, we're always trying to measure up. We're always trying to meet that standard. Our best, guys, is nothing but a polluted garment. It's nothing but filthy rags before God. Now, if you will think about Isaiah's response here. Isaiah's response is the response of all who've been truly born again, is it not? If you've been truly born again, if you truly have God's new life in your heart, guys, this is what happens. God takes dead sinners. He takes sinners that are so dead that they don't even know they're dead. And he does the miracle of the new birth in their life. And, they, and it is a work of God alone. And that new life enables them to see, or us to see, what Isaiah saw. That we are what? Lost that we are lost, that our lips are unclean. And listen to this, we live among a people 
they're unclean. So just in case we think we can piggyback off other people's righteousness, we can't. All right? You know, for many of you, you I've told you guys my testimony. Uh, you guys know. But for most of those who don't know how I came to know the Lord and was saved, when I was 16 years old, uh, my best friend passed away. My best friend was at the lake, and he was there to uh, have fun and have a picnic. And someone was out in the middle of the lake and started drowning. My friend, he jumps in to rescue this person who was drowning, and he himself ended up drowning. And for a 16-year-old, this absolutely rocked my world. As, as, I mean, at 16 years old, you think you're never going to die. You, think, you don't even think about those things. And it rocked my world. And I went into a tailspin, but God was using that terrible circumstance to draw me to himself. And in the subsequent days and weeks and months, uh, I, was, I went in our home, and we had, at that time, my family were not believers. And, but we did have a Bible. We had one of those living Bibles, if you, family Bibles, things like that, huge and so I started reading, and I opened it up, and I, the first book of the Bible I ever read was Revelation. Because I want to know how this all ends, right? I'm pondering my best friend's death and life, and I want to know how this all ends. Plus, I just want to get to the back of the book. But as I read Revelation, I read of God's holiness. I read of God's justness, and that his just wrath is going to be poured out on those who are not his. And who have those who have shaken their fist at God? And guys, I want to tell you, I saw what Isaiah saw, that I was lost. I saw that my heart was like Isaiah's. It was full of malice and deceit and lies and lust and everything else. And I was terrified. I was there in my room, in my house, reading God's word, and I was terrified because I knew that I wasn't right with God. And thankfully, guys, I, by his grace, he gave me new life. He enabled me to see that. And he granted me repentance, as he does for all who believe. And I cried out to God, please save me, O Lord. Please save me. Spare me from this wrath that is to come. And by his grace, he saved me. That's the response, guys, of all who've been born again. Is you understand your lostness. Because if you have not understood your lostness, guys, you can't be saved. I'm sorry. You've got to think about that. Now, even now, as, as a more mature follower of Christ, as I'm growing in my faith, it's not, well, I'm becoming more righteous these days. I'm, I'm more faithful these days. No. The more that you grow in your faith, the more you're going to find yourself face down in the dirt understanding God's holiness, all right? Because you understand how holy he is and how unholy you are not if you're growing your faith. But thankfully, guys, that's where the gospel comes in, is it not? That's where the gospel comes in. So how do we act towards a God in light of his holiness? Dear friends, we respond in reverence and in awe and worship. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
For our God is a consuming fire. Revelation 4.11, as we read earlier. Worship, guys. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. Now, this is the response to the holy God. This is the response to an encounter with the holy God. And my, may I be so bold as to say, dear friends, there are so many people that I hear going around nowadays claiming that they've had an experience with God, the holy God, and they're not changed by it. They're not in wonder and awe and worship of him. They say they had a, had a Coke with Jesus or something like that and shared a bag of popcorn. Guys, that is terribly blasphemous and terribly dangerous. And one should be very careful in saying it such. But the uniform, consistent response in Scripture, in Scripture, guys, to an experience with the Holy God is one of terror and awe and reverence and worship. That's the consistent response in Scripture. And that's how we should react towards Him. But look at what happens next. Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. In this imagery, there is a beautiful picture here, a beautiful yet painful picture of the gospel. The beauty here is of the angel taking this coal and coming to Isaiah and touching his extremely sensitive lips and removing his guilt. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and that the angel does something for Isaiah that Isaiah cannot do himself. And that's remove his guilt and his sin. Repentance is painful, is it not? Sin is the payment of sin is painful, is it not? But in doing so, the angel removed his guilt and his sin was atoned for. Now, this vision is only emblematic of what Jesus actually does for us. Jesus does something that we cannot do on our own. And when we consider God's command to be holy, for I am holy, we can't do that. We will never be able to do that. But... It is only by Jesus taking his righteousness and his holiness and placing it upon us can we be truly holy. And the payment and the pain of that sin is more than what we could ever imagine or bear. But Jesus did that for us, did he not, when he died on the cross? He took that pain. He took that penalty for us. And it is only by the actual atoning work of Jesus Christ that we too can have our guilt removed and our sins atoned for. Right? Okay. In conclusion, guys, what happens when the life-giving, self-existent king of the universe who is so holy that we can't even imagine it 
takes a people who are not holy and removes our guilt by his grace and mercy and by our responding in reverence and awe, what happens? The text tells us in verse 8. Verse 8, Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You know, after being atoned for and made right with holy God, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord. The voice said, Whom shall I send, who will go for us? In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Isaiah was one of God's sheep. And Isaiah heard the voice of the good shepherd. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but I certainly don't want to gloss over it here. Is that in this response and in this conversation, there's yet another hint at the triune God, is there not? When the Lord says, and who will go for who? For us. Who will go for us? And if you think about it, this is, uh, should make you think of Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 uh, says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the triune God here is calling and commissioning Isaiah. And when Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord, he said what? He said, here am I, send me. Dear friends, if you have been given a new heart, if you have been regenerated, if your sins have been atoned for, the natural inclination of your heart should be one of obedience. It should be one of obedience, as Isaiah tells us here. His sin had just been removed. His sins had been atoned for. His guilt removed. He had been given a new heart. For those of us who have been born again and our sins removed, our natural inclination should be one of obedience and willingness. Now granted, are we going to fail? Absolutely. Are we going to struggle with that until we reach heaven? Absolutely. But the natural inclination of someone who's been born again should be one of obedience. You know, thankfully, when God saves us, he doesn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card, does he not? He saves us for a purpose, and that purpose is to join him in his work, the work of harvesting souls on this planet, the work of being his witness on this planet for his glory and for the sake of all who would believe. Thus we read of Isaiah's receiving his commission and his assignment in verse 9. It says, go and say to this people. God told Isaiah to go and to preach to these people, Israel. And they're going to have ears to hear and they're going to have eyes to see. <laughs> God's given us a commission as well, has he not? If you're a follower of Christ, he has given us a commission as well. We know it so well here. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. So in conclusion today, guys, I want to ask you guys three questions. Have you encountered the Holy God? Have you truly encountered Holy God? Or do you just simply know of Him? 
through other people or just know of him? Do you truly know him? Have you truly encountered him? Number two, have you humbled yourself before him? Have you had a right and proper response to holy God? As stated, the uniform, consistent response of someone who has encountered holy God is one of fear, of reverence, of humbleness, of brokenness, of awe, and of worship. From Isaiah here in chapter 6 to Peter before Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And what's his response? He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. To the man in Luke 18, to that tax collector who's in the temple beating his chest saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you had this response? Because the clear and consistent true response to holy God is one of brokenness and humility and awe and worship. And then finally, dear friends, for those of you who have had this experience with holy God, for those of you who do know of God's atoning work in your life, will you act in obedience? Will your life be marked by personal holiness and personal obedience to God's call in your life? When God tells Isaiah to go, who will go? What does Isaiah say? He says, here am I, send me. Is that your natural response? Would you have that response of obedience? If God is calling you and commissioning you to go, which he has, let me just answer that question for you. He has called you, he has sent you. Will you have that same response as Isaiah and simply say, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this word. Lord God, to be honest, I feel so inadequate to preach on your holiness. I feel so inadequate, Lord God, to even describe who you are. Yet, Lord God, that's where I trust in your sovereignty. I trust that your word is sufficient and it will not return void. I pray that it has gone forth this morning, that, Lord God, that it will do the work which you had sent it out to do. I pray, Lord God, that as we are gathered here, that we will worship in spirit and truth. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for making us holy because of your holiness, making us righteous because of your righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen.